Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. The Biden administration is pushing forward its legislative agenda with the Build Back Better proposal. The Democrats have a number of tax plans that pay for it. Looking to the largest corporations and the wealthiest Americans, congressional Democrats are constrained by President Biden's pledge not to raise taxes on Americans earning less than $400,000 a year. But will Democrats be able to hold to the president's promise? Today, I've brought on Kyle Pomerleau to discuss the Democrats' tax proposals and what tax changes we should expect from the House Reconciliation Bill. Kyle is a senior fellow here at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies federal tax policy. Kyle, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. Democrats are trying to pay for President Biden's Build Back Better bill. And there seem to be some new ideas, though. First, let me ask you about sort of a different version of the corporate tax. They, have, they want to create a, a minimum tax for, for companies. Now, what's that all about? Yeah, so this proposal it would enact a 15% minimum book tax on the largest corporations or corporations that earn $1 billion or more in annual profits. Now, this proposal has actually been around for quite a while. Biden proposed this during the campaign. It was in um, the Treasury proposal that they released. Um, and for a while, we thought you know, maybe they're not going to go for something like this. But you know, this week, it's been revived. And now, um, as an alternative to raising the corporate tax rate directly, they're looking to enact this tax. So how, how would this proposal work? Well, under the system, large enough companies would be subject to two parallel tax systems. And so companies would pay the greater of either their ordinary corporate tax liability under the current rules with the 21% tax rate or 15% of their book income with some adjustments. And those adjustments would be, they would still get the research and development credit. They'd still get other general business tax credits. They'd be able to use loss carry forwards. And they'd also generate tax credits um, for paying the book tax that they could then carry forward into future years. We don't have to get into why, why those credits exist, but they are an important component of them. So, so the idea here is that without really going after specific proposals in the tax code, like accelerated depreciation, kind of the backdoor way to reduce the value of those, uh, those provisions and raise you know, anywhere between you know, 100 or $300 billion over a decade. Now, now I, I know you're not the uh, Amazon analyst at Goldman Sachs or something, yeah, but Amazon is often held up as uh, the prime example of a company that people think is it's a super valuable company. Uh, it seems to make a lot of money, but they say, well, it doesn't pay very much in tax. Do you have any idea how this kind of proposal would affect a company like Amazon? Yeah, so uh, what's maybe driving a lot of these results where you see low effective tax rates or no tax burden at all relative to book profits is something analysts call book tax differences. So when companies prepare their financial statements, they're using a different definition of income 
than the IRS uses when, uh, for determining tax liability. And there are good reasons for that. Books are supposed to tell uh, investors how well a company's doing. Taxable income is supposed to fairly distribute the tax burden to companies. So difference, differences can arise between these two. And companies that are growing um, under, uh, under current law, um, like Amazon, can face low taxes uh, because their investments um, can receive larger deductions for taxable income than they can under book, book income. And what the book tax would do to companies like that is that they would scale back the benefit of these accelerated depreciations for investment. So if I'm a company that's going to build a, a, a factory or invest in a bunch of machines, the tax code without the book tax would allow me to fully expense um, a lot of these assets um, and get deductions larger than what I'd get in my book um, for book purposes. But if that pushes my effective tax rate down enough, I could be pushed into the book tax. And that could then offset some of the benefits of that accelerated depreciation. So a big reason why Amazon seems to pay a low tax rate is because it invests a lot. Is that too simple? That, that is, no, that, that, that is a simple and correct explanation for what drives a lot of these differences. Now, each, each company is different. Each company has a different profile in terms of what they're earning here or overseas. And you know, I don't want to speak for any company, but you know, one of the big drivers here is you know, a growing company that invests a lot may have low taxable income. So is there a potential trade-off here in which the government might raise more money, but those companies might invest less? Is that like a potential trade-off? That, that's a potential. The, the investment incentives under a book tax are actually very uh, somewhat complicated uh, because companies are not always going to be subject to the book tax or always subject to the ordinary tax. Companies can bounce in between them. Um, and if you're Amazon and you're looking forward and saying, well, I'm going to be subject to the ordinary tax this year, but two years from now, we're going to be subject to the book tax, that could impact investment decisions much differently than a company that's perpetually subject to the book tax. But for some companies, yes, it, it could raise the tax, uh, tax burden on new investment and could have an impact on um, investment in the U.S. economy generally. I mean, ideally, do, do we want companies to make investments based on what they think the return on that investment will be over the long term, not, not based on how it can try to game uh, a system now, which will, I would, it sounds like we'll have an added level of complexity. As a tax economist, who's, who I would assume that you, you like uh, uh, the ideal tax code to, to be certain, to be understandable, to raise enough money, to be efficient. Would this create a better tax or corporate tax code? I've seen a lot of people conflate this minimum tax with removing tax expenditures and making the tax code simpler. Um, and I think they're totally different policies. I, I think the minimum tax is an additional complexity and actually increases distortions of the tax code relative to the current system. And you're right, a goal of tax reform should be to simplify the tax code, remove some of these provisions that distort investment decisions and distort uh, the type of investments that companies would be making. 
Um, so I, yeah, I worry about policies that move, move in the wrong direction in this respect. Broadly, how does the US corporate tax code compare to other rich countries? Do we do it completely differently? Do we, ra do we raise a lot more? Do we raise a lot less? Are there any, can you give me any sort of just broad generalizations? This is this has been central to the debate over corporate tax reform um, this this time around. And in in terms of uh, the the corporate tax, it depends on what statistic you're looking at. So if you're looking at just statutory tax rates, the U.S. federal rate is 21 percent. Add a, a 5.8 percentage points for state and local taxes. We're right about average. Um, we're above um, many many small countries like. Switzerland, Estonia, uh, but we're below uh, many large countries such as Japan, Germany, uh, and Australia. So we're we're right around average in terms of statutory rate. Effective tax rates, interestingly, um, we are slightly above average. So we're we're placing a above average burden on new investment in 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 the United States than other OECD countries. Um, and one of the reasons for this is that while you know rates vary a lot. In throughout the OECD, tax bases vary just as much or even more than tax rates. And a lot of countries have reasonably um, generous provisions for new investment, um, which bring effective tax rates down quite a bit. The, la the last point I'd make in terms of comparing the US with other countries is that one, one of the favorite statistics of the administration is to compare corporate tax revenue collected as a percent of GDP in the United States versus other countries. And if you look at that statistic, the US is near the bottom of the list. We're collecting very little in corporate revenue as a percent of GDP. But I don't think that this is a very good metric for evaluating the US tax burden on corporations relative to other countries, because the corporate sector in different countries uh, varies quite a bit. We actually have a relatively small corporate sector and corporate profits relative to other developed countries. And this is because we in the United States have a very large, what's called pass-through sector. We have businesses that are taxed through the individual income tax, um, partnerships, S-corporations, um, at a much larger degree than other countries. Um, so that statistic, I think, is, is misleading, not very helpful for this debate. I did some research, um, and it's published in Bloomberg, um, where I, my co-author and I adjusted this statistic and found that after you make adjustments, the US is you know, closer to the top quarter of countries rather than the very bottom. Is one a reason for this idea to get at these sort of super billionaires whose wealth is, is based uh, on their ownership you know, of these companies? But is, is that a reason at all? I've, I've heard some people call this a corporate billionaire tax. Oh, that, that's interesting. So I, I understand where the talking point's coming from, and it's based on that $1 billion in profit threshold. So in a way, yes. So raising taxes on corporations does impact um, the amount of taxes that the owners of these corporations pay. So if I'm a Jeff Bezos and I have a huge stake in Amazon, raising the tax burden on Amazon is going to raise, raise my tax burden as Jeff Bezos, the owner. 
Now, I'd be a little bit careful about conflating taxes on corporations with taxes on billionaires, however, because corporations, um, their owners um, are not just billionaires. Um, if you're a multinational corporation, you have owners that can range from a billionaire that owns a huge stake in your company all the way down to the retiree that's earning $30,000 a year in dividends um, off of your company. Um, so raising taxes on corporations is not very, a very uh, targeted way to get at billionaires, although it does, I think, disproportionately impact billionaires at the, at the end of the day. Okay, let's jump to the one which is very directly targeted at billionaires, uh, which would tax them on financial assets, not when they sell them, but every year based on uh, their, I guess, their, uh, their appreciation on paper. Uh, do I have, is that basically it? Yeah, under current law, capital gains are taxed based on the realization principle. So when you sell a capital asset, you then need to take the market price, subtract the basis, that's your capital gain, and you pay tax on that. This would deviate from that principle for billionaires or people that hit this, this income and wealth threshold that they've defined. And under their proposal, billionaires would have to pay tax on capital gains, not when realized, but when those gains accrue. Uh, this is also called a mark-to-market ta uh, tax on capital gains. So these billionaires would face capital gains tax each and every year at the statutory tax rate, 23.8%, which is the 20% federal rate plus the 3.8% net investment income tax. Uh, they would face that tax on their capital gains each, each and every year. All right. So if you're, I was just, you know, he's in the news and he's currently the the world's uh, uh, richest man, Elon Musk. So every year then he would have to pay that tax on the gains of uh, Tesla stock. Though he also, obviously he also, there's a, he owns other, like he owns SpaceX, but that's not publicly traded. So would that be affected as well? Yeah, the, the proposal makes a distinction between publicly traded assets and assets that are not publicly traded. And it, it comes down to administrability. Publicly traded assets, you can tell at any time of day what the value of those assets are, and it's not very hard to track. So mark, uh, taxing those mark to market is pretty straightforward. Other assets that aren't publicly traded, it's harder to get a market value at any given time. And some assets, you don't know the market value until it's sold. Say you have a piece of artwork that you've been holding on for 45 years, you don't know what the market price is until you actually sell it. So what they've proposed to do for those assets is to maintain the realization uh, principle. So you're only gonna be taxed on gains when you sell it but they're going to change the tax burden and charge taxpayers interest for deferring that tax. So in essence, these taxpayers would pay a tax that would be equal to um, a mark to market tax, but they would still be taxed when it was, when they would uh, realize the capital gains. Um, so it's a, this, this proposal has been around for a couple decades um, and it's, it's meant to, simplify the administration of mark to market when you don't have obvious market prices. The notion of being taxed on the, you know, the paper gains, that seems very different than what we've been doing. So would Elon Musk then have to what? Would he have to sell 
Tesla stock to pay the tax? Like, how does that how how does that work in practice? Then? Yeah, so it's going to depend on the on the taxpayers. Um, so what what's going to happen is that uh, these capital gains will be accruing, but you'll be facing tax. So they're going to accrue more slowly or than they otherwise would have. So they um, under current law, if you hold on to a, a growth stock. Uh, that's going to grow at a faster rate than, say, if you held on to a stock that pays you dividends and you reinvest the, those dividends. So there's going to be a difference in the rate of return on those on, uh, for capital gains under this proposal. Now, whether that's going to require taxpayers to sell, I think that will depend on the taxpayer. Um, I think one one provision here that you know may surprise some is that this provision also when you're a taxpayer that gets pushed into this mark-to-market regime, you're going to be subject to taxation on all of your unrealized gains up to the point um, before you went into this system. So if you're an Elon Musk and you've realized billions in gains over the last several years and you get pushed into this system, the system is going to require that over a five-year period, you pay tax on those gains um, and then going forward, you'd face tax on any additional gains um, in the future. Um, and that could result in some pretty big tax bills for um, some of these billionaires. To what extent are people paying attention to or have they analyzed about the potential impacts on uh, sort of high impact entrepreneurship, you know, venture capital, and you know, further down the line, economic growth? Because it seems that a lot of the emphasis has been you know how to sort of how to extract this money in a way that is politically doable and you know and is and is somewhat efficient meaning administratively efficient but what about the economic efficiency so mark to market will will increase the effective tax burden on income and you think of capital income as having a couple components you know one of those components is just the returns to waiting that you're just being compensated for delaying your consumption. Another big component of capital income, however, is returns to entrepreneurship or returns to good ideas. And a, a higher tax burden on capital gains, a higher tax uh, through mark to market, increases the effective tax rate on, on the returns to good ideas, entrepreneurship. Um, so all things equal, you'd expect that maybe there's less of this activity when you're um, going towards a, to a system like this. I want I want more of that. Of that. I want more good ideas, and they have those ideas turned into turned into very successful companies. Yeah, this is a trade off with tax policy. Uh, this is why, um, even when you go to say this ideal tax system where you have a consumption based tax and um, you're not taxing saving whatsoever, totally neutral between saving and consumption, you still want to keep rates low. Because even under a system like that, you're taxing the returns to entrepreneurship, and you don't want to distort that decision. You don't want, you don't want, you know, all the good ideas to end up somewhere else um, or not happen what at all. Is that trade-off a part of the debate right now? I think it should be. Um, one of the concerns I have about introducing policy so quickly right at the last minute right before a bill may be passed is that there isn't enough time to debate this stuff that uh, yes it can bring about um, drafting errors and you can make mistakes in that way 
but also there's less time to discuss some of the trade-offs you're making in tax policy. Yes, you're raising something between two to $400 billion over a decade, but you're also increasing the tax burden on a bunch of productive ac economic activity. And you wanna ask um, and study you know, whether this trade-off is worth it. Uh, it seemed for about 15 minutes, maybe a week or so ago, uh, they started talking about a carbon tax. I, I don't know if that's still under discussion in any degree, but you know what, whether or not you agree with what they want to use the money to pay for, what about that idea? Is that just kind of a fantasy idea? It's going to pop up every time there's a, there's a difficult moment where they can't figure out how to tax because if they talk to an economist, they say, well, you know, carbon tax, that's a fantastic idea and they'll consider it, then they'll view it as politically difficult. What about replacing those ideas with a carbon tax? I, I think a carbon tax would be a good idea. I think it's a, a an efficient source of revenue. One, it doesn't run into a lot of this the distorting issues of, say, a corporate income tax. It doesn't distort investment decisions in the same way as a corporate tax. It doesn't encourage companies to shift certain types of production overseas as long as it's border adjusted. And it's properly pricing a big externality, which is carbon emissions that lead to global climate change. Um, so I, I think it's, it is a great idea. Um, I'm disappointed that it hasn't been central to the debate, um, especially when Democrats are looking for ways to address climate change in their reconciliation bill. Um, but I understand that the politics are really difficult. Um, it's much easier to go after carbon emissions by saying that you're going to give companies money for doing good stuff rather than taxing companies for doing bad stuff and that that tax then could be framed as something that that trickles down and impacts consumers. The politics are obvious there, even though the results of those policies are very similar. Do we have a long-term sustainable tax system if all we're talking about is taxing a slice of the richest people or a slice of the most profitable company? I know that the president has said he doesn't want to tax people and make, I think, under 400,000. Is that a is that a sustainable pro, uh, promise over the long term? It is not sustainable. Uh, I think one of the biggest issues with the current tax debate is that pledge to not raise taxes on individuals making less than four hundred thousand dollars a year. It's really uh, it's really restrained what they were what they're able to do with in tax policy. I mean, what one issue is that it reduces the the potential tax base. Um, and it takes a lot of really good taxes off the table. A carbon tax is one of them we just discussed. A value-added tax is another. Um, but it also in, encourages uh, additional complexity in the tax code that lawmakers will add complexity into the system in order to avoid raising taxes on, pe on people earning below $400,000. So you'll see a lot of provisions that will say, you know, this only affects those that are above 400,000. Um, and they go about it in you know, a number of different ways that increases the complexity of the tax system. So I think in, in the long run, I don't think it is sustainable to only be looking at very high income households um, in raising their, their rates higher and higher. And um, there's only so much money up there. And I think broader taxes, more efficient taxes are a better way to go um, in the future. Uh, and I, I, my last point here is you know, 
the political concern is always going to be raising the burden on low-income households. Um, but I think any sort of tax reform that is going to propose a VAT or carbon tax is going to do something to make whole those households that might um, lose some purchasing power because of the higher uh, broad-based taxes. I want to jump back just for a quick second uh, to the uh, mark to market. Um, what do you think about that idea just broadly as a, as a way of, of taxing investments that, you know, forget limiting it. Would that be, would that, is that a more efficient or less efficient way of taxing, replacing the, cur the current capital gains tax where you don't pay until you sell the asset? What do you think about that idea more broadly as a, as a different kind of way of, of taxing capital? It, broadly speaking, it's it, it's theoretically sound. So it, it conforms to you know a pure income tax, right? That you're taxing consumption plus the change in net worth for each each taxpayer um, in the United States, and uh, and under a pure income tax, capital gains would be taxed mark to market. And some of the things that are appealing about that are um, that you would be taxing all sorts of capital income in the same way. A one downside of the current system is that capital gains are tax preferred relative to dividends and interest. And that creates a distortion. Mark to market is one way to alleviate that distortion. That said, there's a trade-off to that. One downside, big downside, in my opinion, of an income tax is that it distorts an important decision that people have, which is the, the decision to save and invest. Income taxation creates a bigger burden on, on consumption that you defer by saving and putting that money into for towards useful purposes like building a factory that produces goods and services um, for, um, for Americans. And that's a, that's a trade-off of going to the income tax. And I'd, I'd prefer that we move toward, more towards a, a consumption tax that would exempt um, saving altogether. Um, but you know, from a theoretical standpoint, to answer your question directly, yeah, mark-to-market -mark makes sense, um, broadly speaking, um, but there are trade-offs with everything, this included. Do you know if they're still talking about any kind of just uh, an extra surtax uh, on the wealthy in some fashion, or you know, a 3% surtax on, I don't know, on income, on wealth? Are those kind of ideas still being floated around? Is that something that's still in the, the ether? It's possible. So we, we know right now that um, Senator Cinema is not in favor of rate increases, but I don't know if that applies to new taxes, or if it only applies to existing taxes, we don't really have a good handle on exactly what she she wants. The, the House Ways and Means did propose a 3% surtax on adjusted gross income of $5 million or more. Uh, what's novel about this tax is that it applies to AGI and not taxable income. So its base is slightly broader than the, than the ordinary income tax. And in some ways that makes it less distortive. Um, so things that you would normally be able to deduct against your, your normal uh, tax liability like home mortgage interest, charitable contributions, $10,000 of state and local taxes um, wouldn't be deductible against the 3% surtax. Um, it, you know, whether that su uh, survives the debate, um, I, I, I will not make a prediction. I, I, this week has taught me that I have, um, I've, 
I've been wrong about a couple important things, and I'm not going to uh, set myself up to be wrong. Is, is, there, is there anything you do feel confident about predicting how this is going to end up? Do you have anything with, which is over, you're over 50% confident? So if I, something that's I'm over 50% confident, I, I do think that Democrats ultimately get something done. Um, I, I don't think it's not going to be the 3.5 trillion. It's not going to result in the you know, two and a half to three trillion dollars in tax increases. Uh, but some something is going to be done, um, and those tax increases are going to include some some increases on corporations. I think what's likely is that they pass some of their reforms to the global minimum tax. That uh, what what's called guilty. Um, I do think that they end up passing maybe some individual income tax increases, but you know, as of today, it yet remains to be seen what those look like uh, because they, they need to raise some amount of revenue. Um, so they, I think some, something gets done. It's just gonna be you know, more modest than what I think the Biden administration wanted. My guest today has been Kyle Pomerleau. Kyle, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thank you for having me.